You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the House of Literature. My name is Andreas Delset, and I'm the artistic director at the house, and I'm really glad to see you all here today and to welcome tonight's guest of honor, Paul Beatty. Uh, Paul Beatty is the author of two books of poetry and four novels. His first novel, White Man's Shuffle, was published in Norwegian uh, in 1998. And this year, The Sellout, which has been awarded both the Booker Prize as well as the National Book Critics Circle Award, was published in Norwegian translation. Uh, by Vibeke Saugestad, with the Norwegian title Mei mot Røkla, eller Amerikas forente stater. I'm not going to say a lot about this book tonight, someone else will do that in a few moments, but uh, I just have to say that I don't think I've, I can recall reading uh, another book that has made me laugh, scratch my head, shake my head, and really think uh, so much in a really long time. Uh, tonight, Paul Beatty is here, and he will be joined on stage in just a few minutes by Dan Andersen, who is uh, uh, the author of four books of poetry, uh, the last one being Flagetale, as well as his self-published book, Brev til ledelsen, Letters, Letter to the Management, explaining 200 of his reasons for resigning from his job as an editor. <laughs> Before uh, Beatty and Andersen uh, come on stage, however, we will have an introduction by the literary amateur expert, uh, Thomas Selse, who uh, is with us today in the form of a video. So please uh, welcome him, kind of, in a way. And then afterwards, uh, welcome Paul Beatty and Dan Andersen. Enjoy. And I was supposed to press play. Hello, Paul Beatty. Um, my name is Thomas Seltzer. I'm a literary, uh, not a, I'm a literary amateur uh, expert and um, uh, TV host, and also occasional uh, resident of Orange County, California, Dana Point. Um, wow, Dag Solsta. Have you read this guy? He has a very curly hair uh, on the outside of his skull and also on the inside of his skull. Very fascinating guy. Without question, Norway's bravest, most intelligent novelist, uh, quote Per Pettersson, who's another of uh, the great national uh, pr uh, prides of uh, literary Norway, uh, author of Out Stealing Horses. Um, I uh, just want to tell you how much I love uh, the sellout, uh, or Mai mot Røkla, som heter, uh, as it's called here in Norway. Um, um, I wish I could be there and interview you today, but I, I couldn't make it. I live in Trondheim, uh, in central Norway. Um, before you start, you should know that um, uh, the Little Rascals, uh, Hamni Jenkins, Little Rascals, were huge in Norway. Possibly one of the most popular TV shows ever in the history of uh, Norwegian television. So, um, good timing. I don't know if they're going to show reruns of it due to uh, the sellout, but I hope so. What can I say? Um, it's a really, really impressive book. And, um, and um, it's, of course, as many people have pointed out, satire. But uh, it's also when I put my ear down to the pages, I hear uh, the gentle, a gentle din and hum of melancholy. And um, it's hard to put, put a finger on it, but... Um, it's, uh, there's some sadness here and um, some pain, but um, let's not, <laughs> I don't know where it's from, but uh, I'm sure you can talk about that with Don, the eminent guy uh, interviewer tonight. In a way, I, uh, it, in a way it brings me back to uh, one of my favorite novels of all time, uh, which is uh, John Kennedy Toole's uh, Confederacy, uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Uh, which uh, has some parallels, uh, the throwbacks to medieval and antique uh, culture references, which is uh, just works out really funny, whether it's in the 1950s in New Orleans or in the 19, 21st century uh, South Central Los Angeles. And um, 
that really uh, really <laughs> that makes me uh, laugh. And um, I, I just uh, hope you can say something about that. Uh, as it is, it just a comic uh, technique, or is there something more to it? That's something that really interests me. Of course, the the trans uh, your um, translations of uh, crip tattoos into Latin, which is also very, 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 very hilarious. And um, yeah, I, I hope you can tell us something about Dickens. Uh, um, for anybody who's ever read Mike Davis, a famous book about Los Angeles City of Courts, will know that there's all there's actually been experimental. Uh, housing developments or even little villages in Los Angeles throughout history. Maybe you can say something about that. Actually, the the father here reminds me of my own dad, who I think might be there tonight, actually present, to uh, a radical sociologist who forced me to read uh, Eldridge Cleaver poetry as a young child. So, um, hey, dad. Before we end, I've seen uh, quite a few interviews with you on YouTube from both uh, American um, shows and also more international shows, especially uh, British shows. And uh, uh, I kind of feel uh, a little sorry for you because what they basically mostly want to talk about is uh, what they say is, welcome and, uh, we're welcome, Paul Biddy, uh, you're a writer, but you're black, you're African-American. Tell us, let's talk about that. And I think... It's not a post-racial world until they say, uh, welcome Jennifer Egan, you're a writer, but you're also white. How is it? How does that feel? Or welcome uh, Jonathan uh, Safran Foer, you're a writer, but you're a Jew. How is that actually? I think uh, in all fairness, I think actually he gets some of that though. But uh, um, yeah, let's uh, see if... Uh, the night tonight will transcend race, as Kenny Powers says in Eastbound and Down, um, one of my favorite contemporary American heroes. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sure you can't get around it, because I think that's a lot about what the book is about, of course. Though, in a way, the sell-up might actually be the first proper post-racial novel from uh, Los Angeles, because it's probably the first time a black writer you do the widest thing a writer can do, which is you're actually sort of referencing and listing surf spots from South Bay all the way, I think, all the way up to County Line. So that's pretty white, dude. Cowabunga. I wish you all the best of luck. And uh, it's an honor to be uh, uh, able to introduce you here tonight. But uh, So that's just what I want to say. Welcome, Paul Perry. Um, I would also like to say welcome, yeah. Paul Beattie. It's an honor to meet you. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I was hoping that, um, well, as you could hear from uh, Thomas' uh, introduction, uh, your writing is somewhat hard to uh, talk about sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and I was hoping that you could read uh, an extract for us sure. um, from the beginning of the sellout so that the people in the audience can get a sense of the tone and, and your language and style. Foy held two books, fanning them out in front of the group like a magician about to do a card trick. Pick a culture, any culture. He held one aloft, addressing his audience in an affected Southern Methodist drawl, even though he was from the Hollywood Hills by way of Grand Rapids. One night, not long ago, Foy said, I tried to read this book, Huckleberry Finn, to my grandchildren, but I couldn't get past page six because the book is fraught with the N-word. And although they are the deepest thinking, combat-ready eight- and ten-year-olds I know, I knew my babies weren't ready to comprehend Huckleberry Finn on its own merits. That's why I took the liberty to rewrite Mark Twain's masterpiece. Where the repugnant N-word occurs, I replaced it with warrior, and the word slave with dark-skinned volunteer. <laughs> Thank you. Um. Thomas Seltzer, he asked about all your references mm. uh, to, to ancient literature, for instance, mm. and the literary tradition. Um, 
Is that just a comic effect, the way you use uh, the references? No, I mean, I don't, I don't really think about comic effect, really. I mean, I think uh, I just write. And um, man, sometimes it comes out funny, but it's, uh, I'm not, you know, I don't consider myself like a very funny person. But uh, I think it's because my perspectives are kind of screwed that it kind of feels funny, you know. So, like, even the bit I just read was I kind of stole from a, an essay a friend of mine wrote, you know, about Mark Twain, yeah. you know, about them changing Huckleberry Finn. And I just kind of just twisted it on its head. Yeah. I don't think he hates me, but he might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, that was uh, the second extract I wanted you to read. Mm. But we can jump right uh, into it, I think. Um, this is a character called Foy Cheshire yeah. in the book. And he belongs to this very special uh, select group of people. And it's called the Dum Dum uh, Intellectuals. Yeah. Who are these guys? Oh, I don't know. Uh, just, you know, guys that hang out at the donut shop. Um, Yeah, they're 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 um just I mean, in my head they're just uh, an amalgam of people that just like to talk shit, you know. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think you know, I don't know if anybody's from LA or been to LA, but donut shops are prevalent in LA, you know. Yeah. I think you hear all the, all the time, like you know, you go to certain neighbors neighborhoods, and there's churches and liquor stores everywhere, but there's actually donut shops everywhere. So. Um, And so these are, you know, guys who, who are trying to be a part of a community that they're not a part of, and mostly men, but, you know, people who think they know better for everyone else, I think. Yeah. That's who those guys are. I mean, they're all over the place. I'm sure they're here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they also uh, live in a very special place, uh, a town that has been erased from the map, yeah. and which is called Dickens, yeah. and which also Thomas asked about. Um, and... As I understand uh, from the book, it's an inner city, rural area. Uh, there are farms there yeah. in the middle of Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us something about Dickens? Yeah, well, um, it's a. Uh, I think I had this crazy idea for a book, or half an idea at least, and I was looking for a setting, and you know, I have some my sister and a good friend of mine work in Compton. And, you know, when I don't go home very often, but, you know, I'll drive to go see him. He's a, he actually is a principal at a school. And, you know, you drive there and you see people on horseback. The Times actually just did this article. I don't know if people read the New York Times here, but they did this kind of photo essay about, you know, these black cowboys, you know, which is interesting because that phenomenon is less black and more Latino now. You know, it's both. Anyways, so you drive through this Compton, which has this reputation and, you know, this mythology behind it, but you see people on horseback. And it took me back to the first time I had seen it, which when I was probably, I don't know, 12 years old, my mom had just driven us through there, and it was just weird to see people in L.A. on horses. But uh, she, was, she went through an equestrian phase for a long time, my mom. <laughs> and uh, she used to take us out to a place called the Palisades, which is very well-to-do. And we'd watch polo games and stuff like that. And I guess they had horseback trails. But, and I knew a couple like really rich kids that owned horses, you know. And I just, it got me thinking about, you know, the, the vestiges and the echoes of, you know, L.A. as like an old west town, you know. And you still really see that. And there's a a book that I really like by a guy named John Fonte called Ask the Dust. And in that book, set in the 20s, he talks about walking through downtown L.A. and seeing the desert sand like blow through the streets. And whether he really sees it or he just feels it, it's sort of up to you. But I know what he meant, you know, and, you know, occasionally I'll be driving and you just go, oh, yeah, none of this is supposed to be here. You know, it's still desert, you know, there's no water, you know, all these things. And so they're just vestiges of this, this kind of stuff. And, and then so we were talking about Compton. And so I started asking my sister, like, oh, yeah, what's with the horses? Do you know anything about that? And she goes, no, not really. But she told me stories about her students would buy milk from somebody who owned a cow next door. Really? You know, yeah. yeah. And so instead of getting the milk from the school, you know, they pay 50 cents, I guess, and get, like, freshly squeezed milk. And 
And, then, and, and it's a bit of L.A. that's been there for a long time. I mean, you know, for a, for a very long time. But people know it, but don't talk about it. And I guess few people know about it. But, uh, but I just realized, and I don't, no one knows, owns farms as far as I know, you know. But, but it, was a, it was a good setting for this kind of book that's half reportage, half absurdity, you know. Or, I don't know, maybe it's not half half, but so, uh, yeah. And it's interesting, it's an interesting scenery also, because you always get the feeling that there's uh, so many ghosts from the past, yeah. you know, going through um, uh, the scenery. Yeah. Um, I was saying that uh, it's not... Uh, I have to say, when I, when I took on this job, uh, I was uh, overly optimistic, I think. <laughs> I thought, wow, this is exciting, we'll have a lot to talk about. And uh, I started to read, and I read uh, two or three books, and I made a lot of notes, and then I understand that I have so many problems formulating uh, the way I read them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I have to say I've really enjoyed reading your novels, uh, because when you get into your tone, your way of writing, the unique language, and the way it sort of it, it pierces uh, through the politically correct ways of thinking, um, you get a feeling, I think, that you're taking part in something that's absolutely true, uh, something that has more to do with what separates us from one another than what's, what unites us. Uh, and uh, we'll get back to that later, but uh, I think we should start now by talking about um, the plot of your novel, The Sellout. And uh, because it starts with the main character, who is called me, mm. uh, who is on trial for trying to reinstate segregation in his hometown, Dickens. And this uh, is a strange idea for most people, and it seems even stranger because me is black. And through the novel, he tells uh, the story of his life, and he explains the steps that brought him to the conclusion that to reinstate segregation would be a good idea. And after some time, he even acquires his own slave. Can you tell us, how did you come up with this idea <laughs> for the plot? Everybody asks me that. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I can tell you like why he's called me, I guess. you know. So in the States, I mean... I'm sure Norwegians know more American history than Americans, but you know, you, you, you learn a lot of American history through like Supreme Court cases, and you know they're always you know Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education, you know. And at some point, you know, when I was starting to figure out the book, the idea of me versus the United States was really funny to me, and so then I had to recreate a history to justify, like, the first thing I did was, like, does anybody have the last name me, you know? And I couldn't find it, but so, you know, I had to figure out how to create his history to give him that last name, Yeah, you know? And then some of that is, you know, because of who his father is, is, is kind of recreating it, like how a lot of Jewish entertainers change their names for certain reasons, you know, so he kind of follows that logic. I mean, growing up, you would hear, oh, we have to be like the Jews. You know, people would say this. And so, <laughs> I know that laugh. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, uh, so anyways, but for me, there, there's, there's, there's a lot in there. So that's just that. And then, you know, the ideas. I mean, so much it's, it's just stuff that's sort of swimming in my head for a long time. Um, you know, and another thing that you hear is... Uh, you know, African-Americans were better off under racial segregation, you know, we had our own this and that, you know. I mean, people say that. And, you know, I lived in Germany for a long time, not for a long time, but for a while. And for me, you know, they had what they called nostalgia, you know, like this, I guess my best friends were from the East. And, and so that was also interesting to me because it was so familiar, you know, and I've been talking about this today, I guess, also is, you know, the reason Trump is there because there's this weird kind of nostalgia for something that never existed, you know? And so that's always really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then so you know, I started thinking about segregation and I asked uh, my brother-in-law, who's an academic, teaches at Princeton, I was like, you know, is there any academic thought about African-Americans being better off under segregation? He goes, yeah, you hear about it, it's there. And I, this was really interesting to me. So. 
And then so the really interesting part for me was to try to figure out how do you render this in a contemporary context, you know? And the slave thing comes through the little rascals and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm not like a little rascal scholar or anything, but I've seen it all. Yeah. And me and my sister talk about it a lot. And a long time ago, I found like this feature-length film of the little rascals, which I never knew existed. And I don't remember where I saw it. Maybe YouTube somewhere. And so this, you know, it's 90 minutes of little rascals, and in it. Spanky, a little really young Spanky and another character. I guess people maybe know who Spanky and Buckwheat are when I say that. I don't really I have to explain so. it. All right. That's really weird that I don't have to explain it. <laughs> but anyways, they kind of refight the Civil War. And I think the movie's called The Little General or something like that. And and Buckwheat is kind of Spanky's slave in the movie. You know? And so so there's some of that and there's some of just trope of, you know, Hollywood trope. So, uh, so I just have these things in my head, and it's, you know, I have to try to figure out how to, you know, put them in one book, I guess. But, yeah, I don't know where the ideas come from, really. Yeah. You mentioned Mies' um, uh, dad. Yeah. And he's a character, yeah. I have to say. And he has this, he treats his son like this social political uh, experiment. Yeah. Uh, what is he about? Uh, how is he raising him? And what is he trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the father is trying to... I'm the wrong person to ask what my book is about. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I think he's, he's trying to... He's trying to protect his son. Uh, he's also... I mean, he's selfish. You know, and I think he's trying to build his own legacy. So he's, you know, half Dr. Frankenstein, you know, half Freud somehow. You know, same thing Freud and Anna Freud. I think it even comes up in the book, you know. It's, you know, Freud kind of used his daughter for certain ends, and it really affected how she ended up living her life, you know. Um, so there's some of that, you know. But I, I think fundamentally with that character, it's basically sort of selfish, yeah. you know, to try to prove a point through his son yeah. in some ways. And uh, this guy, me, he's quite a complex uh, yeah. character as well. Uh, he's hyper-intelligent, mm. uh, and he's a farmer who grows the best exotic fruits in the world, yeah. and also the best weed. Yeah. Uh, how do you build your characters? <laughs> <laughs> That's my friend Jill, she knows me a little bit. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it takes a long time, I guess, you know. Um, you know, I think, you know, I tend to write in the first person, so... Most of that, some of that is kind of figuring out what the tone of the voice is, you know, and that really affects who that character is, like how they tell the story. So that's part of it, you know, what words they use, what words they don't use. I mean, that's a big part of it. Um, uh, some of it's experiential stuff from my life. Some of it's, you know, I steal from my friends. Uh, there's a character, I guess, you know, his obsession in the book is this woman, Marpessa Delissa Dawson. And so, how did I build her, actually? Um, it's part of my wife, before I started writing the book, she, was say, she said to me, make sure your women characters have fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, which is something I try to do anyways, but it's really nice to hear that. Yeah. And, and fun means anything, you know, to me. I mean, fun just means make them live life, you know? And so that character is partly my wife, partly my sister, partly a uh, best friend from childhood's sister, you know, and just it's a bunch of stuff. And again, I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue in my books, but part of it is how they see the world, and that slowly builds the character. And yeah, and you just, um, it's not like trying to make them more interesting than they are, but I think it's just try to make them full somehow. Yeah. And um, and so for me, language is a big part of making characters full. I think. Yeah. And I think there are uh, some things that are uh, three of your novels at least have in common, mm. um, uh, because in in the sellout, uh, me gets back uh, get back together with the love of his life, no. Marpesa, uh, and in the White Boy Shuffle, your first novel, the protagonist uh, Gunnar Kaufman, uh, he's almost forced to marry the mail order bride Yoshiko. Yeah. And they are both very strong female characters. 
And um, more importantly, I think, in some way, uh, they help the main characters, the, the hyper-intelligent uh, main characters, uh, reach their full potential, mm. I think. Um, it's only uh, that they become both smarter and crazier, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, I think they do end up helping, but I don't think they intend to help. You yeah. know, I think what they do is they challenge him and kind of push him into corners. Yeah. And then he has to make some decisions for himself, I think. But it's not their intention to help them, you know. I think often they're trying to keep them at arm's length in a weird way. Uh, but yeah, they're important figures in the book. But you know, the book's not about those kind of. I mean, those things come up. But in my head, it's uh, it's you know, how do I build these side characters? I mean, I think for me the the romantic interest of the book, and there's different levels of romanticism in the book, but in the books. But it's very similar to the parental stuff in the book. You know, it's stuff that's there and pervades the book, but the book is not about that stuff. So, you know, like the father is sort of at the beginning, but I kill him off really quickly, you yeah. know. And I, I tend yeah. to do that with my parents in the books, like, all the yeah. time. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, they don't stay in the, yeah, no. in the action, no. Yeah, so, like, in Tough, you know, his mom raises him by speakerphone. Like, you never see him. Yeah. But he's just kind of raised by speakerphone, and his dad's like this distant figure, you know. Yeah. It's like something I think, for me, I used to be a big Charles Schultz fan reading Peanuts. And I always loved the way that he dealt with parents in those things, you know. Um, I think it's just something that really stayed with me, you know. It's just something a little more than white noise, but, you know, that's how I think about it a little bit. Yeah, because uh, my next uh, question was actually going to be about the novel Slumberland, because mm -hmm. then I think some of this, uh, at least about the, the romantic parts of the, the books, are um, uh, you, you uh, are, it's given voice. Yeah. Um, because there, DJ Darkey, the main character, he says, I needed a real woman, exactly like the fictional ones, that always show up in part three of those novels, mm -hmm. the novels he reads. <laughs> um, so... Um, I guess I'm also asking because there are so many layers to your books, uh, also meta, meta layers. And uh, is this sort of a homage to a, a literary tradition as well? Yeah, I mean, for me, like that section, it's funny. You're the first person to ever talk about that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, 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 whether it's true or not, like I, I like to think that I don't try to pander for an audience, you know? And so. I was reading these, you know, I don't read a ton of contemporary fiction, but I was reading some fiction by African-American authors that was really popular. People that I think I know or, you know, know a little bit. Yeah. And so one of the things was always interesting about their black women characters in these books and the construction of these characters. And not, I mean, it's fiction, so it's obviously false. But it, it's there for a purpose, you know, to generate sympathy. It's like, you know, you go to the movie and they kick the dog in the movie and, you know, to start crying, you know. And so, you know, but it's a weird construct, you know. And, and for me, I just don't see people like that necessarily. I, I don't write characters to, to make people feel comfortable, you know. And there's a movie called Sideways that me and a friend went to. People know this movie, Sideways? Yeah, I mean, it has its moments. The acting's really good. But I mean, I remember leaving that theater with a friend of mine who's also a writer, and she hated the fucking movie, and I hated it too, I guess. But, but one of the things I left that movie thinking about was like, I was thinking about like, who's that audience for that movie? How does that movie generate an audience? And the, the phrase I came up with is I was like, well, you know, there's money to be made in making smart people feel smart, you know? <laughs> And, 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 you know, and some of that is like trying to establish what the common ground is, yeah. you know. And, and so that's, um, it's not like I try to avoid that necessarily, but I just try to assume that the reader is smart, you know, whoever that person is. You know, my sister used to write plays and something that she said to me, because, you know, the, the, the refrain is, oh, people are so fucking stupid, you know. And, but she said to me, oh, you know, people are actually very smart. And you know, for a long time, I read a ton of oral histories. And, you know, I love Studs Terkel. I don't know if people know who Studs Terkel is, but 
he did these oral histories about just kind of working class Americans. And, you know, I guess his most famous book is this book called Working. And I try to point, I teach and I try to talk to my students because they're trying to figure out how to develop characters. And there's been a couple that I give that book to because, you know, they, it, it's just about how perceptive people are, you know, when you ask them the right question. You know, they start talking about their jobs, but they're talking about so much more than their jobs, you know, and the nuances that they see. And this, all that stuff really stayed with me somehow. And so, so I, I try to, I don't feel the need necessarily to go, hey, I see you, smart people in New Yorker magazine, you know, and so I, I try not to do that. And um, yeah. I have to say one of the most fascinating characters I've ever read about is uh, Hominy. Mm. Uh, and can you tell us something more about about him? Uh, Thomas mentioned him, but uh, he yeah he's fascinating. Right? Yeah. So you know we're talking about the little rascals, and I mean you know you grow up watching the little rascals and the characters and all this kind of stuff. And I guess the the more famous, not necessarily, but some of the more famous characters in the little rascals are the black kids that are in the movie. You know, I guess always male. And so it's, and it's the one role where, you know, there's a black kid and then that kid gets replaced by another black kid, you know? And so there was, it's almost like, uh, like an internship. So <laughs> there was a, there was a guy. Yeah. See, they're laughing. Now. I'm not trying to be funny, but that's fine. You <laughs> yeah. know? So it's, uh, it just happens. Yeah. Uh, so there was a guy, Sunshine Sammy, who was actually one of the first really big Hollywood stars. And he was a little rascal. And the next person, Farina, comes in little while Sunshine Sammy is still, you know, in his role. And there are different roles, like there's the Darla role, you know, the cute little pixie. But the way those, you know, the next generation of actors is different. So, but the black kids always kind of Sammy. And then Farina comes in, and they share the space for a little while. Then Farina takes over. Then little Stymie comes in. They share the space for a little while, and Stymie comes over. And then there's Buckwheat. And, you know, when Buckwheat came, there was a little character named Buckshot. And somehow, I always was like, the phrase came to my head of Buckwheat's understudy. You know, like, who was that next person in line? And then when, you know, the the cultural racial climate change in the States, you know, that person's career at some point was like, you know, cut off. So I just was wondering like who that character would be, you know? And so it sort of started from there. And as a writer whose who's genius I really admire and a guy named Amiri Baraka, he's, you know, really passionate, sees himself as a revolutionary. I guess he's recently passed away, but just really smart. And it's not somebody I necessarily agree with, but his intellect I, I, I really deeply respect. And I went to hear him read once, and he was talking about uh, a, a once iconic black male actor named Stepan Fetchett. And Stepan Fetchett is like this quintessential coon character from Hollywood films in the 30s and the 40s. And you know, he's really slow, he thinks really slow, talks really slow, moves really slow. And, and he was talking about this character and he said, you know, Step and Fetch It would be in a movie and, you know, his white boss would say, hey, Step and Fetch It, go get that bucket, you know, that's 20 feet away. And then Step and Fetch It would just move, okay, boss, you know. And it would take him five minutes to go, you know, 20 feet. And Amiri said, you know, the, only the most subservient, the most servile, the real domesticated animal runs to get the bucket. Yeah. And I went, whoa, you know, that's a really cool reading of that role. Yeah. You know, whether it's accurate or not, you know, you can talk about. But I loved that, you know, different way of looking at it. And, you know, in, ten, in movies that I like, you know, yeah, me and my sister have the same taste and. You know, and we, we love, like, all these kind of characters, Step and Fetch It, Mantan, Moreland, you know, Sky Lightning, and these things that, you know, were really hidden from us, you know, and these actors are so talented in these really constricting roles, you know? Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And uh, so it's, for me, it's, again, like, how they create space, you know, for themselves, you know? And... And then for me, the false notion of this doesn't exist anymore. We've moved past that. And 
I just rarely think that people move past anything, you know. So, uh, so that was how, a little bit about how that character, you know, came. And I think it's so interesting that uh, Homni, he's, uh, they have me and Homni, they have this uh, master and slave relationship. But it's very interesting to see that uh, the one, the person who gets his will most of the time is Homni. Yeah. He calls the shots. You yeah. know. When I was younger in college, you know, I had a friend, uh, my friend Daryl Williamson. Um, He's a big philosophy, and you know, I have like small things. But one of the things we would talk about a lot was Hegel's essay, Phenomenologia of Spirit. And you know, he's, he talks about this master-slave dialectic in this in this uh, essay. And it's for me, it was fascinating because Hegel points out about who knows more about whom, you know, and it's the slave that knows more about the master, you know, it's the. You know, however these power dynamics work, you know, it's usually the person underneath with the less power that knows much more about that. And that always really stayed with me. And so it's something that's really affected my writing in a ton of ways. But, you know, Hominy is like a, a, a closer embodiment of that, you know. And I had actually recently, just even after I read, after I had written Sellout, I just kind of had reread that and it still really stands up, you know. And so there's, it's just some of that. And... And I remember, I mean, I just, there's certain things that, you know, I make up or I think I've seen or I think I've witnessed that stay with me for a long time. When I was in college, two friends of mine, actually this guy Daryl and another kid who I didn't know, were arguing about free will. And the other kid who was a black kid, and my friend Daryl's black, and the black kid, I always remember him saying, you know, a person has a right to be a slave if they want to be. Yeah. And I just went, just looking at him and going, what's it happening in his mind? You know? <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, I have my own, you know, pop psychology theories about who he is and why he is, you know, whether they're accurate or not, I know. But I always remember him saying that. And, yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk about who the kid was, but it just was interesting to me, you know. And the thing of... Is like, even in this book, he's not his slave. He's never his slave. There's never any real segregation. You know, it's just the suggestion of that. And so some of that is like, what's the power of suggestion, you know? And some of these are themes that I've been thinking about for a, for a long time, you know? Um, But yeah. In, yeah, then uh, when you mention Hegel, I think it's very interesting to see that you, you tend to um, send your uh, main characters out on this quest almost, or, mm. or crusade, yeah. uh, to achieve some sort of, uh, do you say, synthesis in English? Or how, yeah. You know what I mean? They try yeah. to overcome all of the barriers without forgetting them. Yeah. Um, even DJ Darkio tries to create the perfect beat, you yeah. know, that will say yeah. everything about uh, yeah. his culture and yeah. uh, make people recognize it. And yeah. uh, it's... Is such a thing possible? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think, usually they have, like, this impossible task, you know? Yeah. So, you know, DJ Darky has his own task of the perfect beat, yeah. but he comes up against a guy who's trying to rebuild the Berlin Wall, you know? <laughs> and so it's, uh, but yeah, that's, those are things that interest me about, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think, you know, I mean, it comes up in my writing, I guess. Uh, something that I guess I learned from Allen Ginsberg was this thing about precision. And and there's also a thing I think about, I mean, I can just speak from my perspective, even though I think it's sort of American because it's so puritanical and we've got all this Calvinistic tendencies that have been there but that we don't talk about. And it's kind of like that need to be perfect, you know? And I feel that need in different ways, you know, being black and you're supposed to be perfect. And for me, it's interesting about when you have perfection, but it's still never enough. You know, and uh, so that's always an interesting kind of uh, conundrum to me, I guess. Yeah. Um, one of the main topics, as I, as I read your books, is also the fact that uh, you exemplify that uh, we tend to speak of ourselves as part of groups. Yeah. But uh, the way I, I read your novel, it's like you're saying, no, we're not, necessarily. Um, Can you elaborate on that? Ah, uh, that's a really good question. This is down here doing. <laughs> yeah, this is good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, um, my background. I don't know what that means, but when I was in school, I, I studied social psychology, and my little 
thing of interest was social psychology, but more specifically, something called small group processes. You know, and so for me that's interesting because I hate groups of any size, but um, but it's the size of the group that's always really interesting. You know, I've always had this weird fascination with totalitarianism, which is so much around group process in, in, in a lot of ways, and so it's just interesting for me. So that's part of it, and so. You know, I, you know, I had a conversation today about the the pronoun we, which is a pronoun that, as a person, I don't use very much because I often don't know who we is. You know, um, so I don't use it very much, and so it's just something I think about a lot. And I had something I thought was smart to say, and now I can't remember what it was. But yeah, you know, and. I mean, I learned so much about identity and memory when I lived in Germany because it was so familiar, but I had a, another set of specificities to compare it to. Yeah. And I had a hard time living in, I was living in Berlin and I was having a hard time. And I, I was actually telling this story earlier today, but I was having a conversation with somebody and he was saying, oh, why are you having a hard time? And I was like, yeah, I feel like I'm having a hard time getting to know individuals which is also my fault because I'm a hard person to get to know. But, and he asked why, and I was like, well, I feel like I have these conversations and my sense is the person's not speaking for themselves, they feel like they're speaking for the whole country. And he went, we don't do that, you know? <laughs> you know and, 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 and that's true, I mean, this really happened. You know, and yeah. I went, you know, and, and so, but it was just so interesting for me, you know? Yeah. And, and one of the things I, I do in Slumberland is, you know, I make a ton of comparisons between whatever blackness, blackness is and whatever Germanness is, because yeah. I see a ton of similarities, you know. And so the group thing is so amorphous, always changing, identity's always changing, you know, and, and I think, it, you know, we're, we're used to being at fixed because it's easier to, the, to gestate and to digest when these things are fixed, I think. So, it's, yeah, groups are part of that, I think. And there's this thing about um, uh, relating to uh, different sort of, uh, how do you say, uh, problems. Because uh, it's interesting when you read your novels, many, most of it, uh, I would say, is about race. It's about, um, uh, or at least being black contra being white. I'm, I'm not saying all yeah. of it is about it, but it's mentioned uh, quite a lot of times. Yeah. You know, uh, and I thought it was so interesting in Slumberland when he meets this East German guy after they tore down the wall. Yeah. And he says, like, uh, uh, I feel so free. I'm, uh, he, I, I feel black. I am free now, he says. Mm. <laughs> and the main yeah. character, DJ Darkie, goes, well, uh, I don't know if... <laughs> well, <laughs> if it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, so I don't think... I mean, yeah, obviously race is a big part of the books, but I think race is a part of everything. You know, I think all these books... I don't think my books are about race anyway that any other thing that I've read, you know. And part of that is my perception as a reader and my perception as a writer, you know. And the thing is, my perception is, my perception is just as valid, you know. And I think that the thing of when something's about race and when something isn't, for me, is really interesting. And it's because we're looking at a thing from a certain direction, you know. And I try to think about a bunch of different directions happening, you know, at the same time. And often what things aren't said are just as important, I think. Um, uh, yeah, what do you ask me? I'm sorry. No, no um, uh, well, it was about, uh, it was sort of about uh, the fact that now you're widely translated. Yeah. Uh, you've achieved a lot of success. You go to all these interviews in all uh, these countries. Yeah. Um, and uh, it may seem like you're writing about something uh, specifically yeah. American. Yeah, you know, but yeah. there are so many people relating to your books. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, it's the sense of the being other, like what that means. Yeah, you know, and I think people relate to that otherness in different ways. Yeah. You know, in different times, and you know, I have my own perception, and but that perception is I, I, like I was saying this maybe yesterday. You know, I, my students often talk about, well, I don't relate to this, I don't relate to that. I just don't know what that means. You know, just have never read something and went, oh, because I relate to something? I don't think I've ever related to anything that I've read, you know? Yeah. And, but I think that need to have relate to something, and if you do relate something, that elevates it somehow. That makes it good because you can, I just, 
I don't understand that. Uh, but there's just things that I like about a book or things that speak to me as a book, but it's not about being related to it or yeah. it confirming or affirming me or something. Um, so I, I try not to do that necessarily. Um, it's interesting because this relates to something that you've said about uh, writing plots. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, did I say You said yeah, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, in, in an interview with the Paris Review, you say... Well, can I interrupt you for one second? Yeah, yeah like, So you do. were talking about the German thing. Yeah. And so one of the things I loved listening to people talk about the wall coming down and talk about East Germany. And so one of the things was about... Anonymous was about bananas and I was like and I was like well what were people doing and I guess bananas were hard to find in yeah. East Germany I guess and so I love that and you know I suffered all this really suffered it's not the right word but you know I encountered all this racism you know and you know that everybody thought was very East German for some reason you know the West Germans was like oh that's them you know yeah. but the bananas thing was really funny to me because in my my own weird head, you know, everybody went straight to go buy some bananas, you know. Yeah. And so it's the, the, the association, it's weird. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. This, I think these things cross so much, you know, and there's a beautiful Kafka story called Report to the Academy about a caged gorilla who's at this university. Do you know this story? No, I don't. That's a beautiful story. And I gave that to my class and I guess there were only a couple of black students in the in the class but they were very offended by this gorilla because they thought that gorilla stood for blackness and my wife studies a lot of Kafka and she thinks of Kafka as a very black writer which I completely understand and but I, I was you know I try to get them to think about you know when the gorilla is used and it's not just about blackness you know if you look at war propaganda You know, the, uh, the enemy is always, especially, you know, in World War One and World War II, it's always this primate, you know. And, uh, and just there's just so much of that. And so there's so much overlap in all this stuff, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I just no, wanted to no, tell that story. I, I think it's very interesting because, um, because I think uh, somehow when I started to read you, uh, the first uh, thing I thought of was that it seemed like the starting point of your writing was more in the essay genre than the novel. And, mm. But I understand now that that's perhaps my, uh, me misreading you. Because um, I was thinking that it seems almost, sometimes it seems like the plot evolves uh, around what you want to talk about. Yeah, that's true, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, but uh, in an interview with the Paris Review, you say, I think plot is very subjective. If a book is about something you care about, it doesn't matter what tangent uh, it goes on. As a reader, you're tied into it in a way that feels like plot, that feels like structure. But if the book is about things that are really, really tangential to how you read, or, or different to how you read, uh, or the things that are in your world, your reaction might be, oh, there's no plot here. Yeah. So that's also perhaps just me, and me not uh, in the beginning not relating to the plot or having... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, I being think, prejudiced or something. No, I don't think it's about being prejudiced necessarily. I think, but I do think it's objective. And like, so when I think about plot, there's only one thing that I've ever seen that really has a plot, and it's an old French movie. It's not that old, called Elevator to the Gallows. I don't know if people know this movie, but it's a beautiful movie, and it's because every action leads to it's all causality, you know, and. So that's really interesting to me. So that's the one kind of plot-driven thing. But part of it just comes from reading book reviews, you know, and the thing. And I'm like, why is this plotless and this isn't? You know, because it's something that I go, oh, that's plotless. But for them, it's like this really important, tightly woven thing. Yeah. You know, but for me, it's just, you know, I just realized. And then I also realized that certain types of writing gets construed as plotless, yeah. you know. And so I just, I just realized that it's... Um, It's very subjective, you know, at least in, from my perspective. Yeah. I also want to get back to, uh, because we're, uh, we're running out of time, but uh, in uh, the introduction, Thomas Seltzer says that when he puts his ear to the paper, mm -hmm. uh, he says uh, that he hears this small uh, sound of melancholy. Mm -hmm. And uh, because that has also uh, been my... Um, Uh, how do you say it? That's also 
uh, a way that I've been reading you uh, in the last days. Mm. It's almost like if, because uh, you say in some interviews that you don't like people to call it satire mm. or just focus on the humor. And uh, it becomes uh, clearer and clearer to me that it sounds like it's almost like the humor is just a layer over many uh, deep tragic events. Yeah, I mean, the humor is, this is how I write, I guess, you know, I don't think of it as, I mean, we talked about this already. But, you know, this, the satire thing, I think, becomes like a, a thing that people can hide behind. And a guy pointed out to me, he, was, he pointed me out to this, uh, I think it's on YouTube, but it's Nabokov talking about Lolita, you know, when the book first came out. And the television moderator keeps talking about the book as a satire. He doesn't say it's not a satire, but... And I just never thought about that book as a satire. It's just a fucking good-ass book. You know, but it's it's a thing of talk. It's a thing that you can do to 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 not talk about melancholy or to not talk about you know the way we see young girls in society and the way they're viewed. You know, it's like a there's it's a thing and and the thing I don't do it for the for the audience. I don't talk, but I do it for myself because I don't want to be a satirist. I had a student, this kid Calvin, who was really funny, a really good writer. And we were talking about this, and this, they kind of made me teach a satire class. Yeah. And the first thing I was like, yeah, I don't believe in satire. I don't know what it means necessarily. And then so we were talking about this, and Calvin is like this very abrasive person. And he was talking about, yeah, you know, whenever I say something that's really racist or sexist, I just go, oh, I'm just being satirical, you know? <laughs> and, and you see people do that in the media. And so I don't want to be the person who feels like they can say anything and go, yeah, I'm just being satirical. That's not very interesting to me, you know? So I think that's... I avoid it, not for anyone else, but for myself, you know, for my own latitude. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you've traveled a lot lately, and you've been interviewed uh, hundreds of times. Um, which question do you hate the most? What's your, what's your book about? <laughs> <laughs> what's your book about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I think that's all we have time for, but thank you so much, Paul. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks, man. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.